getting things back together again in Kant. Any study, including the study of philosophy, usually begins with making distinctions, refining differences. With a comprehensive, precise philosopher, a philosopher with a system, like Kant, it seems as if one could spend a lifetime just trying to work out the distinctions without ever coming around to pull together the things that have been distinguished, that have been separated in thought. I would like in this talk to try to account for how some of the major factors distinguished by Kant come together and cooperate within the wholes that they constitute. The lecture divides into two basic parts. Experience and the sciences based on experience, according to Kant, are based on two primary sources, sense intuition and conceptual thought. Concepts without intuitions, he argues, are empty, and intuitions without concepts are blind. How do they come together? Comparing Kant's account with the corresponding treatment in Aristotle should, I hope, be helpful. The fundamental question behind this first part is how to account for the cognition we do experience, how to account for the partial intelligibility of our world. The realm of nature, natural science and experience, according to Kant, is determined strictly by necessary laws of cause and effect. The realm of morality, on the other hand, proceeds in accordance with laws of freedom. Like parallel lines, it would seem, the two realms never meet. Kant speaks of the great gulf that separates these domains, that, quote, completely cuts off the domain of the concept of nature under the one legislation and the domain of and the domain of the concept of freedom under the other legislation from any influence that each might have had on the other." Unquote. The question then naturally raises itself, how are the realm of nature and the realm of morality related or connected in one and the same world? In his long and difficult book, The Critique of Judgment, Kant develops the notion of purposiveness, especially the purposiveness of nature that in some way is intended to bridge the gap between nature and morality. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, I don't have sufficient time to do more than touch on that subject. The concept of purposiveness that Kant talks about is not found in nature but supplied by the reflective judgment of the investigator whenever the investigator comes across phenomena like the phenomena of living organized beings for which the laws of mechanical cause and effect do not seem adequate. These purposive laws are to make sense of the phenomena as if some intelligent cause, a god, had made them. A purpose is defined by Kant as an effect that is possible only through the concept of that effect, the concept that is itself the cause of the effect. Like Thomas Aquinas, Kant argues that ends in nature only make sense when they are thought of as intended by some intelligence, namely God. Teleology, he argues, finds its consummation in theology. But this God is not to be assumed to have objective reality. The idea of such a being is produced by us in order to satisfy the subjective needs of our cognitive faculties. The realm of the reflective judgment also contains Kant's analysis of the aesthetic judgment the account of the beautiful and the sublime. The reflective judgment sometimes seems to be a judgment that possessing an indeterminate particular is on the search for the universal or universal law 
under which the particular could be subsumed, which, if found, would transform it into a determinate judgment that yields knowledge. It, it evidently plays a key role in a very important subject not extensively discussed by Kant, namely concept formation. In his logic, he speaks of concept formation as based on three logical operations of the mind. Comparison, reflection, and abstraction. Quote, the essential and general conditions of generating any concept whatsoever. For example, then comes a very nice, simple example. For example, I see a fir, a willow, and a linden. In comparing them with another, I notice that they are different from one another in respect of trunk, branches, leaves, and so forth. Further, however, I reflect only on what they have in common, trunk, branches, and leaves. And then I abstract from their size, shape, and so forth. Thus, I gain a concept of a tree. That's, as far as I know, the only place where he actually spells out in detail about concept formation. Uh, Uh, I'm not sure that, that was a note that was intended to be a note, but I changed it. Let me see if I'm, I hope I'm back where I left off. Teleology, he argues, finds its consummation in, uh, no, I, no, I think I said that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, the other thing about the reflective judgment, it plays a role in aesthetic judgment, which has attractions of its own in the pleasure felt from reflection on the free and harmonious play of one's own faculties of imagination and understanding, which are brought on by the beautiful object. That's about all I'm going to say about the critique of judgment. <clears throat> the, the gap between nature and morality also raises another question, which is both a theoretical and practical question, namely, how do nature and morality coexist in one and the same human being? This question leads to the major topic of the second part of this talk. Almost everyone who aspires to be generally educated in philosophy reads Kant's The Foundations or the Grounding of a Metaphysics of Morals usually after reading his prolegomena to any future metaphysics, or, as we do it here, selections from the critique of pure reason. His metaphysics of morals is much less read. One is almost bound, it seems, almost, almost bound, it seems to me, to get a distorted picture of Kant's moral philosophy from reading the foundations alone. In the foundations, Kant clarifies the ultimate principle of morality, the categorical imperative, by distinguishing it from what others claim are the sources of moral principle. The source of moral principle, he argues, is not nature, not divine revelation, not moral sense or feeling, not pleasure. The discussion usually takes the form of arguing why those plausible alternatives are to be ruled out as sources of moral worth. Kant's view appears as a noble but narrow, inflexible formalism. Quote, so act that the maxim of your action can be made into a universal law, period. The chief difficulty for those who have read only the critiques and the foundations is to see how Kant applies the categorical imperative. In ethical and political matters, the meaning of principles usually doesn't become clear until one sees how they work out in practice. The metaphysics of morals is devoted entirely to working out how the categorical imperative is applied within the varying circumstances of human life. 
Despite the formalism, it reveals Kant to be a deep, wide-ranging student of human nature who is very much aware of the importance for morality of the sources that he rejects as ultimate sources of morality. My second part will attempt to illustrate how in the metaphysics of morals Kant tries to make sense out of morality, in part by showing how the moral law comes together with the alternative sources that were rejected in the foundations. It should be, I hope, the most pleasant part of the lecture. First part. First and longest part, I should say. Most discussions of Kant begin with his modifications and deepening of doctrines inherited from Descartes, Spinoza, Locke, Leibniz, Hume, and others whose philosophies can be associated with modern mathematical physics. By emphasizing those modifications, the premises which those thinkers all share, in particular those premises formed in opposition to the classical Platonic Aristotelian approach, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. In particular, those premises formed in opposition to the classical Platonic Aristotelian approach are taken for granted and, as a consequence, are both insufficiently questioned and thereby insufficiently clarified. This talk hopes to remedy the defects of such an approach. If there is to be genuine knowledge, must not that which is in the knower be in some way the same as that which constitutes the object known itself? In the Mino, Socrates speaks of the form, the eidos, as that through which things are what they are and that towards which one looks in order to give an account of what they are. Aristotle speaks of how in sense perception, the sense is receptive of the forms of sensible things without their material, just as the wax receives the mark of the signet ring without the iron or the gold. As Joe Sachs put it, quote, the same form that is at work holding together the perceived thing is also at work on the soul of the perceiver. On the basis of what evidently lies in both pre-philosophic and philosophic experience, and on the supposition that genuine knowledge is possible for human beings, Plato and Aristotle and their followers argue that human beings are endowed by nature with two interconnected kinds of intuition or insight sense intuition and intellectual intuition, nous, which open themselves correspondingly to two kinds of forms, sensible and intelligible forms, the forms implicit in human speech as well as the forms of sense experience. According to the analyses of Plato and Aristotle, the intelligible forms are understood to be primarily responsible for the way the world and things are as they are. And accordingly, they become the objects of the highest kind of inquiry, the study which came to be called metaphysics. The great early modern opponents of the classical tradition and of the classical tradition and its medieval offshoots seem to regard this presupposition of harmony between the mind and discourse of human beings and the nature of things uh, to be a gullible and naive optimism. Nature is not a kind mother. She deceives us. The cognitive equipment she endows us with conceals rather than reveals the true character of things. Bacon, in the first book of his New Organon, especially his treatment of the idols of the mind, devotes himself to, the to, quote, the refutation of the natural human reason. That refutation includes a refutation and account of those philosophies, especially the philosophies of Plato and Aristotle, that idolize or even idolatrize 
natural human reason. Kant, it seems to me, acknowledges the continuity of his great project with that of Bacon by choosing as the epigraph to the critique of pure reason a long excerpt from Bacon's Novum Organum. Aphorism 48 in book one of the Novum Organum, uh, I think, deals with one of Kant's main themes. Anyone wants to follow that up? Uh, Thomas Hobbes was unrivaled for the lucidity with which he stated his opposition to classical thought. In his The Elements of Law, Natural and Politic, we read, quote, whatsoever accidents or qualities our senses make us think there be in the world, they be not there, but are seeming and apparitions only." Unquote. What we are led to think are the characteristics of things in themselves are rather the effects upon ourselves of causes or things which in themselves are utterly unknown to us. As for intelligibles, universals, Hobbes tells us that there is, quote, nothing in the world universal but names, for the things named are every one of them individual and singular. He often criticizes Aristotle for, make, for mistaking discourse about our thoughts and the ordering of our thoughts for discourse about things in themselves. Traditional metaphysics from this point of view is absorbed by logic, if not by psychology. Kant continued and developed this critique. We cannot know things in themselves, he argues. Science, the study of nature, is concerned only with what appears to us with what lies in our experience, and as far as we can know, lies only in our experience. We are led by nature to think that what is presented in our experience is of, or refers to things that exist independently of our experience. As if we possess the power to intuit intellectually the intelligible natures of things in themselves. But, Kant asserts, sense intuition is the only intuition available to us. There is no such thing as intellectual intuition for human beings. To emphasize both the denial and the temptation at the same time, he defines the word noumenon, which he and his readers knew in Greek means object of nous, object of intellectual intuition. He defines it negatively as a word to refer to that which we can in no way know, an unknowable X, the unknowable thing in itself. Kant seems to have never given an explicit and direct refutation of the intellectual intuition he so emphatically rejects. Years ago, I was puzzling about this with the distinguished Kant scholar Louis Beck, and Beck finally said that he guessed Kant must have thought that he has given us everything valid that intellectual intuition was thought to have supplied and with more adequate explanations of its grounds. Beck was referring in part to the fact that although according to Kant we cannot go beyond phenomena to things in themselves, we can have objective, universal, and necessary judgments about them, that is, about the phenomena that constitute our experience. We can accept Hume's critique and starting point without the burden of his skepticism. In fact, Kant argues, objectively valid natural science, mathematics, and moral law now on his basis can be more adequately grounded than they have ever been before. Kant's categories, the pure a priori concepts that ground experience, his substitutes for Platonic and Aristotelian ideas or forms, have no purely special intellectual objects of their own. They are valid and meaningful only in application to human experience, meaning sense experience. 
Reason, the ultimate source of understanding and its concepts, is not intuitive for Kant, but legislative. It provides rules for the meaningful organization of sense experience. These rules we call concepts. Despite these fundamental oppositions, there is a deep stratum of similarity in Kant's approach and the Platonic Aristotelian approach. Both find the meaningfulness of ordinary sense experience fundamentally dependent on what is primarily at home in thought, even in logic. Kant might be thought of as, in his own way, joining Socrates' taking refuge in the Logoi. The same act of the mind that functions in discourse to determine a certain kind of judgment, when it acts as a category, provides the necessary conditions of meaningfulness that determine the particular objects of sense experience as particular objects of experience. Thus, Kant can say paradoxically that reason prescribes to nature its laws. He must have also been thinking of how, in his Principia, Newton presents mathematical reason prescribing its laws to nature. That is, after working out different general mathematical force laws for bodies traveling in different kinds of geometric orbits in Book One, he then, some 200 or so pages later in Book Three, determines the astronomical system of the world quite simply in a few pages by setting down the observational data, the phenomena, and seeing to which of those force laws they conform. Now we have to keep in mind the actual discoveries of the mathematical laws were accomplished very much in interaction with observations of those things governed by them. But Kant spoke but Kant spoke of his critical philosophy and Newton's procedure as part of the more general Copernican intellectual revolution of modern science. Let's take the most important example. We see the sun rise, move across the heavens, and set each day. The Copernican hypothesis accounts for the apparent daily movement of the sun by the rotation of the earth, or more generally, by the activity and movement of the observer. Kant accounts for the meaningfulness of sense experience in terms of its conformity to the rules set by our own conceptual activity. Hitherto, he argues, it has been assumed that all our knowledge must conform to objects. But he reverses the priority by asking whether it is not rather that we attain knowledge of objects when those objects, sense objects, conform to the conditions that our concepts and understanding set for all objects of experience. Experimental science, too, is seen as part of this intellectual revolution. In the experiment, reason approaches nature with fixed laws in mind and then creates conditions that would never occur in nature's own ordinary course in order to force nature to answer reason's own questions. Earlier, I spoke of how Kant cut off intellectual intuition as one route from experience to the things in themselves that are experienced. But what about gaining access to the things themselves that are sensed through sense intuition? The one kind of intuition that Kant asserts we do possess that avenue is cut off by Kant's notion of what it is that we receive through the senses. Following Hume, Kant agrees that what our senses present to us are impressions, or as later writers who follow this approach say, sense data, not sense objects, but sensations, mere matter for sense objects. Sensation for Kant is not yet sense intuition. For sense intuition of sense objects to occur, 
the matter must be ordered or formed into appearances and experience. The formative or ordering power does not come from the object form, but lies in the mind a priori, that is, independently of all sensation or experience. Quote, the form of all appearance must altogether lie ready for the sensations a priori, I'm sorry, the form of all appearances must altogether lie ready for the sensations a priori in the mind, and hence, that form must be capable of being examined apart from all sensation, unquote. I'm giving a kind of review, but uh, the form of outer objects of experience is space. The form of inner objects of experience is time. Space presents no properties or relations of things in themselves. Quote, it is the subjective condition of sensibility under which alone outer intuition is possible for us. As the a priori form of inner sense, time is the condition of possibility for any intuition or experience of simultaneity or succession. If, as we shall shortly see, all experience itself depends upon synthesizing activities of the subjects of experience taking place in time, then time is the subjective condition of possibility for all intuition, for all experience, and for all cognition. Quote, time is the formal condition a priori for all appearances in general, unquote. How, according to Kant, now at last I'm getting to my theme. How, according to Kant, are intuition and concept brought together to produce experience and knowledge? The crucial link is the imagination. The pure imagination, Kant tells us, quote, is, quote, a basic power of the human soul which underlies a priori all cognition. By means of pure imagination, we link the manifold of intuition on the one hand with the necessary unity of pure apperception, the source of the categories, on the other hand. By means of this transcendental function of the imagination, the two extreme ends, namely sensibility and understanding, must necessarily cohere. For otherwise, sensibility would indeed yield appearances, but would yield no objects of an empirical cognition, and hence no experience. Actual experience consists in one, apprehension of appearances, two, their association or reproduction, and thirdly, their recognition in this third element, which is the highest of these merely empirical elements of experience. Such experience contains concepts which make possible the formal unity of experience and with it all objective validity, truth, of empirical cognition. Now these bases of the recognition of the manifold, insofar as they concern merely the form of an experience as such, are the categories. Another way that Kant expressed the difference between the two extreme ends, sensibility and thought, is the difference between receptivity, the receptivity of blind sense impressions, and spontaneity the source of all thinking. The two seem to be defined in opposition to one another. Understanding the ability to think an object of sensible intuition is our spontaneity of cognition. That is, the ability opposite to receptivity, the ability to produce mental representations by, by ourselves. I'm using, uh, most of the time, but not all the time, Pluhard's, Pluhard's word for Vorstellung, presentations. In the older translation, it's representations. Uh, I'll, I'll go back again. Um, understanding the ability to think an object of sensible 
intuition is our spontaneity of cognition. That is the ability opposite to receptivity, the ability to produce mental presentations by ourselves, to go through, take up, and combine mental presentations in acts of synthesis. Quote, by synthesis in the most general sense of the term, unquote, he says, I mean the act of putting various presentations with one another and of comprising their manifoldness in one cognition. Spontaneity, he asserts, is the basis of the threefold synthesis that brings sense intuition and conceptual thought together. The three syntheses are called one, the synthesis of apprehension in intuition. Two, the synthesis of reproduction in imagination. And three, the synthesis of recognition in the concept. The first two syntheses are, if I understand them, under the aegis of what Kant calls the productive imagination. What the first synthesis, the synthesis of apprehension, accomplishes is the taking together of the received impressions as existing in one consciousness in time. Our sense of my comes from that. The individual becomes conscious of a unity of intuition in him or herself as existing, quote, in me, unquote. It is only when the received appearances are apprehended, are apprehended and combined within a definite consciousness that Kant calls them perceptions. The next stage, the synthesis of reproductive imagination, depends upon an association of perceptions brought together so as to produce an image of an object. This depends on, on a power of the mind to, quote, call over, unquote, a preceding perception to a subsequent perception to form a series of perceptions. The objective ground of the association, Kant says, is the affinity of appearances in the unity of our perception. A non-Kantian might be tempted to ask, is this a surreptitious glance at the outlawed thing in itself? But Kant argues, this process depends on the unity of consciousness of original apperception and is an a priori synthesis, thereby traceable to the action of the productive imagination. The third synthesis, synthesis of recognition in a concept, is more familiar to everyone who has read about the pure concepts of the understanding, the categories. Here there is a recognition that the manifold of former syntheses are a unity of syntheses according to a rule, that is, according to a concept. We have now reached the pole of thought. We now recognize the former syntheses of appearances, associated perceptions, and finally an image as unified according to a rule, a category under which they are subsumed and validated as conforming to the conditions of possibility of an object of experience. At the end of this account, Kant is satisfied that he can now say, quote, hence the order and regularity in the appearances that we call nature are brought into them by ourselves. Nor indeed could such order and regularity be found in appearances had not we or the nature of our mind put them into appearances originally. There are at least two other prominent accounts of imagination mediating between sense and understanding. Uh, I'll talk about them briefly. Kant's transcendental deduction of the categories culminates in his discussion of the schematism. A schema is not an image, but a product of the power of imagination, 
a rule of synthesis for the imagination that governs the production of images suitable for subsumption under concepts. Another most important function of imagination is its provision of a priori intuition, the foundation of mathematical knowledge, according to Kant. Kant, like Newton and Hobbes, defines mathematical objects operationally rather than theoretically, as Euclid mostly does. A line is what is generated by the path of a moving point rather than a breathless length. One is almost tempted to say a point that we have moved in our imagination. The intuition is a priori because we, through our imaginations, supply it. It is not derived from experience. In mathematics, concepts are constructed. That is, the universals, the concepts, are operative as rules of construction for the, for the a priori images. Oh, there's no, no blackboard. Well, may, maybe later. <laughs> uh, the, the universal is found in, in the particular. Construction of concepts is defined by Kant as the production and, exi and exhibition a priori, that is, in pure imagination, of the intuition which corresponds to the concept. Because in his, because in his mind, the, no, oh, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Because in his mind, the geometer produces a circle with every radius exactly equal, quote, he can demonstrate by means of a circle which he draws with his stick in the sand, no matter how irregular it may turn out to be, the attributes of a circle in, generally, in, in general as perfectly as if it had been etched on a copper plate by the greatest artist." Unquote. The production in pure imagination of the intuition corresponding to the concept, Kant calls schematic, in contrast to the merely, that's a schematic intuition, in contrast to the merely empirical intuition on paper or drawn in the sand. In the middle of Kant's account of the threefold synthesis, we have just gone through, a strange footnote appears. Here it is. That the imagination is a necessary ingredient of perception itself has, I suppose, never occurred to any psychologist. This is so partly because this power has been limited by psychologists to reproduction only, and partly because they believe that the senses not only supply us with impressions, but indeed also assemble these impressions and thus bring about images of objects. But this undoubtedly requires something more than our receptivity for impressions, namely a function for their synthesis. Uh, this, this criticism of what seems to be a pre-modern notion of perception, it seems to me, begs the question by assuming that what the senses supply are atomistic impressions, which then would require some other source to assemble them into sensible things. Sensible things, as Kant knows, are what most people think they are perceiving through their senses. Kant was familiar with Aristotle's logic, but evidently not with deonima. Aristotle's account of these matters seems to be much simpler. It remains very close to the ordinary and general experience in which they are found. As Joseph Owens put it, he, quote, lets things speak for themselves, unquote. He and Kant, it seems to me, are talking pretty much about the same phenomena, however differently they account for them. In the beginning of his metaphysics, Aristotle speaks of how all animals by nature come into being with sensation, and how, for some, memory emerges from sensation, 
which makes them more intelligent and able to learn. He assumes that, of course, memory presupposes imagination. An animal remembers by recalling an image of something which has been perceived in the past and is no longer present, Kant's reproductive imagination. And so he, Aristotle goes on, quote, the other animals live by imaginings and memories, but have little share in experience. But the human race also lives by art and reasoning. Experience arises out of memory for human beings. For many memories of the same thing bring the capacity for one experience to completion. And experience seems to be almost like knowledge or science and art. And knowledge and art come, up, come about from experience for human beings." Unquote. Experience is the link between memory and science and art. Experience then arises from memories when many memories of the same thing are linked together in a unity. For example, this cured Smith. It also cured Jones and Green and Quinn. Therefore, it should cure Bennett as well. The doctor, thinking about Bennett's illness, is led by something to call up the images of those former patients and their cures. The intelligible character, Aristotle calls it, Ennoema, Ennoema. The intelligible character of the illness of the patient before him recalls the same intelligible character he had noticed in the illnesses of Jones, Smith, and so on. The intelligible character of the illness is at work both in and through the perceived patient before him and in the doctor's mind as well as in and through the images recalled of past patients. Aristotle has a name for the kind of human imagination that works together, that is, cooperates with thought. He calls it rational imagination, fantasia logistique. It is distinguished from the kind of imagination that human beings share with the other animals, sensible imagination imagination, aesthetique. Let us recall, however, that experience is cognition of individuals. The intelligible form is working away in the linkage and the unity of experience. But, but it, so to speak, has not come into its own yet. In science and art, when one can say, this kind of medicine cures this kind of illness, the intelligibility of the form that was at work in experience is explicitly and fully recognized in speech as a universal. This culminating contemplation of the form as a universal is described by Aristotle in a way that at first seems strange. He describes it as a coming to rest of the soul out of its normal and natural disorder. But it is not the rest of inertia. It is the very active and untroubled calm of natural fulfillment, the gratifying fulfilling of a potency that was there from the beginning. The Kantian account is certainly more technical and impressive. It tells us about all sorts of processes that, remain hidden, that remained hidden until Kant explicated or invented them. Because according to Kant, we do not receive the forms of sensible things through our senses, but rather impressions or sense data, the imagination plays a larger role than it does in Aristotle. The, 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 the sense data for Kant must first be assembled or synthesized by the imagination before we can recognize them as constituents of sense objects. 
For Aristotle and common experience, as Kant knew, our primary sense experience is of things as sense objects. The Kantian account describes a world that in its intelligible essentials is of our own making. The Aristotelian account sticks much more closely to given experience. The causal factors it invokes almost seem to be extrapolations from the descriptions. It finds intelligibility, perhaps even intelligence, in, in things and the natural world. We are instructed not so much to grasp or construct it as to open ourselves to it. Second part, much shorter. Uh, freedom in the sense of autonomy, self-legislation, is the fundamental principle of Kantian morality. Rousseau, whom Kant speaks of as a kind of Newton of the moral world, was perhaps the first to define freedom as self-legislation. But the idea is already implicit in Hobbes's theory of sovereignty and the social contract. We must obey the sovereign, Hobbes argues, because each of us, through the social contract, has agreed to allow his will to represent each of our wills. He is our representative. His legislation, because of the social contract, is legally considered our own self-legislation. Hobbes also formulated the more general principle underlying this conception. Quote, there being no obligation on any man which ariseth not from some act of his own, for all men equally are by nature free, unquote. Obligation here seems to be something like a contract with oneself. This becomes even more explicit in Rousseau's doctrine of the general will. Freedom in society consists in uniting oneself with all the rest under the general will that declares the law, while at the same time remaining free, that is self-legislating, insofar as one has contributed to the making of that law, either by taking part in the legislative assembly oneself or taking part in the election of legislators. The process that makes the will general also makes it moral. Being compelled to express one's will in such a form that it can become a general law so that it can coincide with the wills of all the others moralizes the will. For example, I don't like to pay taxes. I am, uh, if I generalize my desire into a law that no one ought to pay taxes. I am compelled to see that then the police, public schools, courts, the enforcement of contracts, and so on, would all disappear. The irrationality of my original desire becomes manifest. This idea is fully developed as a moral principle in Kant's doctrine of the categorical imperative. So act that the maxim of your action can become a universal law. The truly free or moral person, according to Kant, bows only to the moral will or practical reason within him or herself, and not to any standard coming from without. The standard of autonomy, self-legislation, is opposed by heteronomy, heteros other, legislation by another. The two most powerful and prominent forms of heteronomy that are to be dethroned are the standard of nature derived from philosophy and the standard of God derived from biblical revelation. Pure practical reason is the only source of moral law. Anything, therefore, empirical or sensual in origin is disqualified as a source or standard of moral worth. That rules out moral sense, moral feeling, and pleasure. It also rules out happiness as a standard, happiness being understood by Kant 
as a kind of sum of satisfaction of empirical desire, or as he puts it, of inclination. The rational principle of heteronomy, the concept of perfection, at least does not, as the empirical principles do, undermine morality, Kant says, but by its emptiness and vagueness is, quote, altogether incapable of serving as its foundation. With this glance at certain programmatic aspects of the grounding of a metaphysics of morals, we can now turn to the metaphysics of morals. The book is divided into two parts that correspond to the, tra to the traditional division between political philosophy and e ethics, the doctrine of right and the doctrine of virtue. Duties of right are defined as externally enforceable obligations, the external enforcer being a just, lawful, or right-protecting political order. Duties of virtue, ethical duties, are internal obligations. Duty is a necessitation or constraint of free choice through the law. The constraint in ethical duties, then, is self-constraint. Quote, self-constraint through the representation of the law alone, for only so can that necessitation, even if it is external, be united with freedom of choice. Free choice is not indeterminate. Free choice is that choice that can be determined by pure reason. This is, incidentally, an echo of Spinoza's notion of freedom. Everything is determined according to Spinoza. Freedom is the special ability of some human beings to be determined by clear and distinct ideas. And uh, back to Kant. And just to wrap this up, throughout both parts of the book, the word obligation refers to, quote, the necessity of a free action under a categorical imperative of reason. But, but before we enter into some of the substance of the book, it is time to clear up one fundamental point. Kant frequently speaks of the unbridgeable gap between the domain of sensi sensible empirical nature and the domain of moral freedom, as our earlier quote illustrated. Those, those statements turn out to be only provisional to help us get clear about where our different principles are coming from. Freedom is a kind of causality. Although the natural causality of the sensible world cannot determine the subject as a moral, supersensible being, quote, yet the reverse is possible, not with regard to our cognition of nature, but with regard to the consequences that the concept of freedom has in nature. This possibility is contained in the very, this is Kant still, this possibility is contained in the very concept of a causality through freedom whose effect is to be brought about in the world." Unquote. Those effects manifest themselves as appearances in the world of sense. This causality of freedom is another way of talking about how pure reason becomes practical. This can only happen when reason makes the individual's maxims, maxims are subjective principles of action, this can only happen when reason makes the individual's maxims fit for becoming universal law. And further, since we human beings are under the sway of nature's causality as well as freedoms, that power of reason can be exercised, Kant says, only by its prescribing the moral law in the form of imperatives that command or prohibit absolutely. Uh, he also speaks of how a holy will, the will of God, which has nothing that interferes with how 
pure reason works needs no imperatives. It just moves in accordance with pure reason, or it is pure reason. Since my general aim here is to illustrate how Kant's sensible natural realm and supersensible moral realm come together in one and the same world, I will concentrate here on the doctrine of virtue, because that is where those sources of morality re that are rejected in the foundations as ultimate principles of morality are done justice to as important factors in moral life. Excuse me. An end, Kant explains, is an object of free choice, the object of some action, and is, there, and is thereby empirical. The traditional or classical procedure of clarifying the rank order of one's ends and then setting one's personal maxims of duty in terms of the rank order of those ends. Did I do my homework or should I go to the movies? Well, I get a lot of pleasure from the movie, but rather important to get my homework done. So the end, really, so the maxim is, I'll do my homework. Uh, this is, uh, I think, the traditional, classical, fairly common way of making these decisions. Uh, the traditional or classical procedure of clarifying the rank order of one's ends and then setting one's personal maxims of duty in terms of the rank order of those ends violates the concept of duty, according to Kant. Duty with its categorical ought is rooted in pure reason alone and thereby must be in control of the maxims by which one sets one's ends. The ends to be sought in ethics, then, are ends that are also duties. Although both nature and the concept of perfection were ruled out as moral standards, in section seven of the doctrine of virtue, we find the end that is also a duty to cultivate one's own natural perfection. As Kant also says in the foundations, ends that are necessary and objective ends for every rational being that is, ends in themselves, can serve as moral laws. Rational nature, he declares, is an end in itself. It follows that human beings, being rational natures, are obliged in one's own person or in the person of another to always treat humanity as an end, not a means. The end of humanity in our own persons is linked to the duty to make ourselves worthy of humanity by cultivating our natural capacities to realize the ends set forth by our reason. Then Kant goes on, quote, that is to say the human being has a duty to cultivate the raw abilities of his nature by which the animal first raises itself into a human being, unquote. Happiness, we remember, was also excluded from moral goals. But Kant now goes on to declare that the happiness of others is an end that is also a duty. Happiness of others. The argument here is rather interesting. It seems to ground itself on universalizing a not very exalted natural and selfish principle. The reason why we have, quote, a duty to be beneficent is this. Since our self-love cannot be separated from our need to be loved, helped in case of need, by others, we therefore make ourselves an end for others. And this maxim can never be binding except through its qualification as a universal law, and hence through our wills also to make others our ends. The happiness of others is therefore an end that is also a duty. I think that's a strange one. Shortly thereafter, Kant again puts his prodigious deductive powers in the service of his good sense 
by qualifying this duty. Quote, how far it should extend, that is to make the happiness of others your duty, uh, how far it should extend depends on each person's true, uh, depends on what each person's true needs are in view of his sensibilities. And it must be left to each to decide this for himself. For to promote the happiness of another at the sacrifice of one's own happiness, one's own true needs, would be in itself a self-conflicting maxim if one made it into a universal law. Now you know, now you know why you should not simply sacrifice yourself for others. Section 12 is especially interesting. Outlawed feeling and pleasure come into their own. The subject is, is those, quote, moral endowments, unquote, resting on feeling that are required to prepare the mind to receive concepts of duty and to act on them. There are duties to cultivate, the, there are duties to cultivate these right dispositions of feeling. Moral feeling, according to Kant, is the, quote, susceptibility to pleasure or displeasure, merely from the consciousness that our action is either in agreement with or is contrary to the law of duty. Then comes a statement that I find rather astounding coming from Kant, quote, for all consciousness of obligation depends on this feeling. He then goes on to explain that moral feeling is what makes us aware of the constraint of duty. I think it's got something to do with the displeasure of any constraint. Uh, there is no duty to have or acquire moral feeling because every human being, as a moral being, already has it. The obligation is, quote, only to cultivate it and to strengthen it through wonder at its inscrutable source. The lack moral feeling is to be morally dead, Kant says. And then, in appropriately passionate language, he goes on, quote, and if, to speak in medical terms, the moral life force could no longer excite this feeling, then humanity would dissolve, as it were by chemical laws, into mere animality and be mixed irretrievably with the mass of other natural beings." Unquote. The other great source of heteronomy both the foundations and the critique of practical reason tells us, is the biblical God of revelation. Kant ends the metaphysics of morals by speaking of religion as an integral part of the general doctrine of duties, but says that considered as a doctrine of duties to God, it lies outside the boundaries of pure moral philosophy. The necessity for religion is stated quite, quite clearly. Quote, we cannot very well make obligation, moral constraint, intuitive for ourselves without thereby thinking of another's will, namely God's, of which reason in giving universal laws is only the spokesman, unquote. This duty with regard to God, he goes on, is really a duty to the idea we ourselves make of such a being. It is really a duty of a human being to him or herself, quote, for the sake of strengthening the moral incentive in our own law-giving reason, unquote. Kant hints that if we would really like to follow up this subject, we could consider his book religion within the limits of reason alone. That book, like the metaphysics of morals, is one of those rare places where Kant describes human beings as we know them, whole human beings, 
who are at one and the same time natural and moral beings. It may be fitting to end this talk with a very brief discussion of Kant's views on religion. The critique of pure reason established according to Kant that we have no knowledge, knowledge, positive or negative, concerning the existence of God. Unlike biblical religion, religion according to Kant is unambiguously subordinated to morality, to moral reason. Quote, pure moral legislation through which the will of God is primordially, primordially engraved in our hearts is not only the unavoidable condition of all true religion whatsoever, but is also that which really constitutes such religion, unquote. True religion, he argues, quote, is a purely rational affair. Religion within the limits of reason alone establishes what in the absence of knowledge we are obliged to believe in order to strengthen our capacities to obey the moral law. Kant had trouble getting his book on religion printed. Members of university theological faculties at first withheld permission. This led him to write his book, The Conflict of the Faculties. In that book, he comments on the traditional idea that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology, with which I will end. The only question is, he remarks, is she the handmaiden that walks behind carrying the train, or is she the handmaiden that walks ahead with a torch to light the path? 